Well, good morning, church. Um, if you've got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, I would invite you to open them to Luke chapter 2 and keep it open. I will point to it often, and we're just going to continue where we left off from last week with the Christmas story. And this is one of my favorite Christmas passages. It's often overlooked, but I love the idea of expectation, and so that's going to be one of the dominant themes this morning. Well, someone asked me a while back whether I liked Christmas better as an adult or as a kid. So think about that for a minute, because I couldn't really answer it because they're both so different. You know, as an adult, you have this never-ending barrage of activity, of expenses, of, of busyness. Um, there's the joy of buying gifts and watching your kids open things. There's probably a more robust theological understanding of what we're celebrating um, and the joy of appreciating the small things that you just can't do as a kid. But as a kid, you get the joy of eating as much as you want with no consequences, and you don't have to think of the timing like, it's 11 o'clock, I probably shouldn't eat this because I'll be up for four hours. You don't have to think about expenses because everybody's buying you stuff. You have the joy of anticipation of winter break, of Christmas parties, and lots of times with friends. You also have the wonder of driving around and looking at Christmas lights with your family and Christmas music, and there's just this air of expectation um, that is in the atmosphere. But as I pondered it, I think really the difference is, as an adult, much of my time is spent in sentimentalism and reflection. And as a kid, it was always summed up with great expectations. You remember sitting in class and watching the clock on that last day before Christmas break, wondering, how in the world can time move this slowly? And you're waiting and waiting, and teachers are droning on and on about things that you stopped caring about in October. I remember sitting there and, and just anticipating grandma's caramels and snowball fights and cookies when I got home. But more than anything, it was the anticipation of gifts under a Christmas tree. Now, my mom would put the presents under the tree as she purchased them. And she'd wrap them and you'd sit there and we weren't allowed to touch them. Very strong rules about touching, like you don't get them if you touch them. And so my, it didn't stop my brother and I from getting under the tree and looking for any crack in the wrapping paper that we might be able to anticipate what, were, what was in those boxes. That was great. But my favorite thing was the waiting that took place at my grandparents' house. And I mentioned this last week when all the aunts and uncles and cousins would gather around and eat. Big feast. One, one Christmas, my grandma made 16 pounds of mashed potatoes and six pies. And that was for eight adults and eight kids. So you can pretty much guarantee I will never preach on gluttony here. But I remember waking up early in the morning and already being able to smell fresh turkey and baking bread and pie. And then we have to wait hours and hours until we ate. And then we'd spend an hour and a half uh, gorging on food, followed by about an hour and a half of cleanup where grandma would pull all the women aside and they would do dishes and clean up. I think it was her time to just have quality time. All the, the men were supposed to go watch the grandkids and inevitably were falling asleep on the couch and getting yelled at by grandma. Um, and I, again, I referenced this last week, but, but after that, so after waiting, it'd be about three o'clock in the afternoon. We've been up since about six. And then we'd gather in the living room and we'd play hymns on the piano. The whole time we're looking over at the presents as little kids. And then all the grandkids would have to recite a Bible verse they learned that year, or sing a song from their you know, Christmas recitals. And then the aunts and uncles would go around and recount all the ways that God had blessed them uh, this last year. It took 
forever. <laughs> and then grandpa would say, okay, we're done with that. Everybody gather around and we kind of roll our eyes. We sit at grandpa's feet and he would read from Luke 2. The whole time, the presents are mocking and shining and mocking and shining and the expectation is building. And uh, I would give anything now to sit at grandpa's feet again. He went to be with the Lord about a, a year and a half ago. And when you talk about all my Christmas memories, that's my favorite one. And, um, and yet it was the buildup of all day waiting. And my grandparents were farmers. And so I can't remember. The irony is I can't remember a single present I ever got from them, except every year we'd get those Lifesaver books. Um, and that was the thing that if I think about that time period, I go back to that. But I don't remember anything else. I just remember the expectation. I remember the praying, the reading of the scriptures. And even now with eight grandkids of ballooning into 30 great grandkids, and we still do many of the same things when we gather together because generational torture is a family right. Well, this morning we're going to look at a man whose entire life, at least as it's presented in scripture, is marked, is, is marked by great expectations. Last week, we walked through the first half of this chapter. We saw how Jesus, king of the universe, comes in uh, humility, mostly to a world that is oblivious. There's no paparazzi. The only people that join in this celebration and seem to uh, recognize what's going on are the angels, and they appear to shepherds that no one would have cared about at the time. Matthew tells us that maybe some wise men noticed and, and made their journey, but other than that, the king of the universe comes in relative anonymity. There still are a few people, however, who have been eagerly waiting for this, who've been looking to the promises that have been made. And like Matt and I, that's my brother, crawling around under the tree looking for any clues as to when this promised Messiah was to come. And so at the temple, we're introduced to one of these men. His name is Simeon. We don't know much about him. We just know that the, the entire point of his life, at least as we see in Scripture, is waiting to see the promised Messiah. In some ways, Simeon lives in a perpetual Christmas Eve. We have no idea how long he had lived with this promise. He may have been a young man, but I think the context dictates that he was an older man who had been faithfully and eagerly waiting for some time. Like a watchman who would go to the city wall every night and look out waiting for the dawn to come. I imagine he'd wake up every morning thinking, is today the day? And it's that same type of expectation that should mark us. We are a people of Advent still, eagerly waiting every day for God to fulfill his promise of coming back to gather his bride. And so in some ways, we are much like Simeon. I had a second cousin who had Down syndrome, and he went to be with the Lord at the age of 66. His name was Steve. Now, Steve was one of the happiest, most joyful people I had ever met. Huge Cub fan. But Steve figured out the secret to being a happy Cub fan was to only ever watch their wins. And so he would record games, and if they lost, he would just throw the, the tape away. But if they won, he'd replay it. And every time you saw him, because he knew I was a Cub fan, he'd walk up and he'd, he'd say, Nate, Cubs won. And I'd say, no, Steve, they lost. That's what they do. And he would say, no, they won. And I was like, what is going on? I looked at his mom, and so she had to explain to me how to do this. But more than the joy found in the Cubs... My favorite thing about Steve is he would close almost every conversation when you left and he'd look up and he'd say, maybe today, maybe today. And this is a man who has relative, relatively low cognitive understanding and yet his joy, his entire life fascinated by the fact that maybe today the Lord was going to come back. 
And so Steve died four or five years ago, and the, the good news is, is we are four or five years closer to that maybe today being finally fulfilled. Well, friends, just like Simeon, we are an expectant people looking for Jesus again. And our Sunday corporate gatherings, when we do this, it's like one big giant maybe today. That's why we're here, to reflect and worship at what God has done and remind each other in the midst of all the trial of what he has promised yet to do. And so through all the hardship, we encourage one another every Sunday, look up, take heart. He's promised to come back. This isn't all there is, maybe today. Well, Luke tells us that Simeon was led by the Holy Spirit to the temple. And there he was. There was the child of promise. And you can imagine, again, opening that present that had been promised for so long. All of the hopes, all of the expectations finally realized. Did he, did he pinch himself? Did he really believe what he was seeing? Christmas Day had finally come. The present was finally unwrapped. Did he run, run to hug this little child or did he tiptoe in disbelief as he timidly reached out to grab the Messiah? Luke tells us in verse 28 that he took him into his arms and he worshiped him. What a cool moment. The creator of the world held by this old man. Imagine the flood of emotion that would have enveloped him as he picked this child up with trembling arms and tears in his eyes. He had finally seen the salvation that had been promised for 2,000 years at this point, even longer than that, I suppose. The serpent crusher from Genesis, the lamb of God from Exodus, the greater high priest from Leviticus, the eternal son of King David who will reign forever, the good shepherd promised in Micah, the great prophet priest and king here in his arms as a suffering servant from Isaiah, the one who had promised to enact a better covenant in Jeremiah, God himself in the flesh being held by a frail old man. Everything that the Old Testament had pointed to, the great I am was in his grasp. Think of all the emotion that would have been be contained in this. I mentioned this last week, but we fail to read the Bible with imagination when we don't understand that these are real people with the same emotions, the same heartache, the same expectations. Imagine what that would be like for the Lord to come to you and say, you will not die until you behold the Son. And then you see him. All the buildup, beholding, lifting him up. And look at the words that overflow from his heart, starting in verse 29. Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. Salvation had come, but it did not come in the form of a manifesto, but in a child. And often this time of year, if you read any newspapers, you will find these editorials that say, what we need this time of year is to come together, to love each other, to be unified. Let love triumph to make this world a better place. But the salvation that Simeon holds says the opposite. It says that God came because without him, there was no hope. It says that God accomplished salvation because we couldn't save ourselves. It said that light had to come because the world was in darkness. And scripture tells us that we actually loved the darkness. It tells us that salvation had to come from the outside. And so in that way, Christmas is not very sentimental, is it? Because it doesn't say, cheer up, pull yourself together. If we just band together, we can solve the world's problems. You don't have to be a very good historian to see that man has failed at that miserably. 
we don't look inward for hope in this world. We must look out. There is light and there is glory, but it is outside of man. It is not within him. Modern sentiment says you find peace when you're true to yourself, but salvation that's offered in Jesus Christ says, look to me, forget yourself. I am the truth and the light. I will do it for you. Simeon undoubtedly is drawing from prophecies in Isaiah. Look at chapters eight and nine. I think the slides are up here and we won't read the whole thing. We'll just pull out some highlights. But starting in chapter eight, verse 22, it says, and they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. Chapter nine, verse two, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness on them has a light shone, and then nine, five through seven. We forget this part. This is, this is important, I think. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For unto us, a child is born. To us, a son is given and the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice, with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Now put the pieces together here. It doesn't just say that a child is born. It says that a son is given. Salvation is a gift to be received, not a reward to be earned. All that Simeon has done is to reach his hands out, to wait and to trust. And as he looks at this child, he realizes that salvation has come in the form of a gift. It was offered as, if it was offered as a reward, all of us would fail to earn it. But it's a gift so that all of us by faith can receive it. And this is often the hard part of Christianity because a gift given can say something about the need. If we all decide that Grant needs a gift and all of us get him how to shorten your preaching books, in order for him to receive that, he has to go, there's a theme here. Thank you for the gift. Is it thank you for the gift or is it no, thank you for the gift? So to receive certain gifts, take a certain amount of humility. And I've honestly got to say, when I share the gospel with people now, 20 years ago, there was an apologetic element of convincing people about the existence of God. Now it's convincing people of their need. Go share the gospel with people. I'm fine. Something's wrong. I'm a victim from, my, from where I came from. I'm a victim from some type of oppression. But the issue is not me, certainly not my human heart. That's way harder to do, to say, here is a gift that you need. You know, I don't need that. I'm good. I'm fine. Here, do, do I have the receipt? Can I take it back? You see, there has never been a more humbling gift to receive than Jesus Christ, because to do so requires you to come to terms with the fact that you couldn't get to God on your own. He had to break into the story because otherwise you would never have known him that you needed saving because you couldn't save yourself, that you have a debt so big, someone else had to step in and pay it, and that your sin is so offensive to a holy God that it required your death, but someone else will die for it. This child will do the dying, and this child will do the fighting if you just have the humility to kneel down and to trust him. Notice that that passage in Isaiah begins with a picture of a battle. 
but it says that the boots and garments, they will be burned up. You don't need them anymore because the fight will be fought by someone else. And the work of this Messiah is more clearly revealed in the book of Isaiah as it unfolds and we see that this battle is fought not in the way that we might think because he is pierced for our transgressions. He's crushed for our iniquities and the punishment that brought us peace was on him and by his wounds we are healed. Friends, the gospel is good news. It's not good advice. Salvation has come. It's not earned. You couldn't do it. That's the light that has shown and has revealed not only the glory of God, but exposed the need of man. In this way, Christmas is both glorious and humbling. And sadly, most of the world in two weeks will dance around in the same darkness that they danced around 2,000 years ago. They'll talk sentimentally about a child being born as if it's a myth with no bearing on their lives, or they will raise a fist in opposition to him as they rail against nativity scenes or any mention of Christ. Simeon saw it. He saw this day when the divisiveness is caused by this child that he holds because not everybody greets this baby with joy. Look at the second part of his prophecy in verse 33. And his father and his mother, they marveled at this. But here's what he says. Simeon blessed them and said, behold, this child's appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. It's no coincidence that we often leave this part of the prophecy out at Christmas. This is the painful side of the gospel because not everybody is going to respond. Some will rise and some will fall. Some will pledge allegiance and some will continue to rage in defiance. Some will open their hearts and some will raise their fists. And Simeon again is drawing from Isaiah in chapter eight when he writes this. And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. You see, the coming of Jesus provokes a crisis, a fork in the road. Either people believe or they don't. Every encounter with Jesus pushes people to one side or the other, but nobody can remain indifferent. Some are terrified and they beg him to leave and go away. Some try to throw him off the cliff while some walk miles just to touch his robe and poor people pour out perfume upon him in worship. The Pharisees hate him because he confronts their arrogance and self-righteousness and the poor love him because he takes a knee and embraces them. The woman at the well leaves with renewed hope, even though her sin has been laid bare because she has found forgiveness and living water. And a rich young ruler leaves sad, but no one encounters Jesus and leaves indifferent. Why do you suppose that is? It's because of what he claims about himself. He is either God or he is not. Those are the two options. This makes him supremely wonderful or certifiably insane. But at some point, we have to deal with these claims. Think for a moment, just ponder how invasive Christmas actually is. And we'll talk about this a little bit more next week. But if Jesus is in fact God, it threatens everything we hold dear. Every kingdom we have tried to build now is shattered. It means that there's truth and a standard, but I don't get to dictate it. It means that I find out what God is like 
but I also find out what he demands, and he demands perfection, and I can't do that. But Jesus says, I got it. I got it. I can't do it. The gift is the perfection that Christ offers in his active obedience and what he does in upholding the law and in who he is as God himself. This is the gift that we receive. If Jesus is God, however, it also means that I have hope because it points to a fact that there's actually a solution to the woes of this world. And maybe, just maybe, God might be able to fix what's wrong in the world and what's wrong in my heart. And that hope is given a face during Christmas as the character of God shines brightly in the little cooing of a baby. I like what Tim Keller writes. He says this, A God who is only holy would not have come down to us in Jesus Christ. He would have simply demanded that we pull ourselves together and that we be moral and holy enough to merit a relationship with him. That's impossible. A deity that was an all-accepting God of love would not have needed to come to earth either. This God of the modern imagination, I like how he says that, would have just overlooked sin and evil and embraced us. Neither the God of moralism nor the God of relativism would have bothered with Christmas. This is why Jesus Christ cannot be ignored. This is why our culture rages against nativity scenes as any reminder of Christ's reign because he unsettles everything. He's not a little, pedal, a little pebble thrown into a pond. It is a boulder thrown into a pond. If he's holy, it means that we cannot simply shrug off sin. It has to be dealt with. And if he is king, it demands that we take a knee and honor him. That's what the gospel is. The gospel is going from this kingdom and saying, here is my sword. I'm taking a knee. Please forgive me for my treason. When he says he is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes comes to the Father except through him, that is offensive. Who does this man think he is? But if he is in fact God, then all authority belongs to him. Then everything falls into place. This is why he is spoken against. In some ways, I wonder if the modern secularists that speak against Christ actually get it more than many who claim to be evangelical. Because we are not simply celebrating the birthday of some cute, cuddly baby. This child changes absolutely everything. And Simeon understands that what he holds up in this child is the most divisive thing in the world. He is either the great threat or the great hope, the great comfort or the great turmoil, the great angst or the fulfillment of great expectations, but he cannot be ignored. People will flock to him or they will run from him. People will worship him or they will hate him. Matthew tells, or, uh, Matthew tells us this when he's quoting Jesus in Matthew 10, 34. He says, do not suppose that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Now, you know, he's not promoting violence. That's not his point. What he's saying is, this is a call to allegiance. And that allegiance is gonna bring conflict both internally in our own hearts, but it's also going to bring it outside among people. Because Jesus is a peacemaker. But peacemaker often, peace, making peace often requires a subduing of enemies. And this is what Simeon means when he says, Jesus will cause the rising and falling of many. It will be a sign that is spoken against. Jesus is a very polarizing figure. You can talk about a cute baby in a manger this time of year at an office party, and you won't really ruffle any feathers. But talk about who he is, 
what he claims to do, who he claims to be. And you will witness the rising and the falling. You'll hear the sign being spoken against. See, this was the problem in the early church. The Romans didn't care if you took Christ and simply placed him on a pedestal with a pantheon of every other God. But soon enough, the Romans realized, wait a minute, this guy claims to be the only God and you guys claim to worship him, which means you don't worship the emperor. You don't worship the pagan gods. You no longer will abide by our rules. Then all of a sudden, it began to cost them their lives. And it's the same in our culture. Take the edges off Christ, throw him in a bucket with every other God and every other idol of our day, and people are fine. But take him out of the manger and put him on a throne, and you can be sure that division is going to come your way. Well, then Simeon, he looks at Mary, and these are pretty ominous words. He says, a sword will pierce your own soul too. And Mary probably had no idea what Simeon was talking about here. But John tells us that there was going to come a day when Mary would stand at the foot of the cross while her son was crucified. And it seems in those early chapters of Luke that Mary finally kind of grasped that her son is in fact the Messiah, the one who will save mankind. But like everyone else, she doesn't fully grasp what this is going to require. And so Simeon says, you need to prepare a sword is going to pierce your soul. And sometimes, again, we remove the humanity. But you moms, imagine what this prophecy would have meant to you. A lot of ambiguity here, but you knew there was something unique here. And all of a sudden, the words would come back to you one day as you're standing at the foot of the cross. Even with all that she had been through, angelic visitors witnessing countless miracles as her son started his ministry, listening to hours and hours of Jesus' teaching, she would stand there at the cross one day and the doubts would have to set in. The sword was going to pierce her soul, much like it pierced the side of her son as she attempted to make sense of it all. I imagine her reflecting on the first meeting with Gabriel and all the hopes that a young expectant mother would have carried in pregnancy. I imagine her reflecting upon that baby shower we talked about last week with stinky shepherds. She probably thought back at the cross when she was there, the first steps that her little baby took as he waddled across the living room. And now he's taking his steps to the cross. I imagine she smiled as she watched her son heal blind and deaf people to cast out demons as, she brought people back, as he brought people back from the dead. And yet here he was subjecting himself to this humiliating death. Why? I thought he was the Messiah. I thought he was going to bring salvation. And for three days, he would lie in a grave and she would weep and wail like all grieving mothers do when they lose a child. Her soul would be pierced in grief and confusion. She loved her son and like all of us longed for salvation. At the foot of the cross, she would be forced to see her own need for her sin and what was required for salvation. There's got to be another way, right? You can imagine all you moms thinking through this, but there isn't because the gospel is a train wreck for the soul. It drives you to your deepest insecurities, your darkest sins, and your greatest needs. But it also, it brings the greatest peace, joy, and hope because you see Jesus is either the rock on which you stand or he is the rock under which you are crushed. Look, friends, it doesn't take long to look around at the world and see how broken it is. It doesn't take long to look in a mirror and see how broken our heart is and our lives are. 
We've tried for thousands of years to fix it with all kinds of ideas and philosophies. And we've been groping around in the darkness and we've exchanged the truth of God for a lie. This is Romans 1. But a light has shone. A child has been born. A son has been given. And it is left up for all men to determine, will I receive this gift? And so as we prepare for communion, I do want you to ask and truly consider the claims of Christ. If you don't genuinely know him, please don't make Jesus a metaphor this time of year. He never intended that to be the, 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 the case with this story. It's not a story about the victorious life. There's no moral story in the, in the, in the nativity, only an invitation. Come, bow down, worship, and find peace. Come and see what God has done. Jesus comes as the light because we were too blind to find our own way. He comes as a gift because we were so poor we had nothing to offer. And he dies in our place because we were too morally ruined to be pardoned any other way. But the best news of all, and let's not forget this, he has promised to come back because he lives. He conquers sin and death. He defeats the last enemy. And the next time he comes, it will not be as a child on a night when no one notices. The next time he comes back, it will be on the clouds with trumpet sound and everyone will notice. And everyone will respond in this moment. There will no longer be an oblivion to what's going on. You will respond in fear and you will cower before the king or you will lift up your arms and say, there he is. I have been longing for this for a long time. And in this way, friends, we are just like Simeon. We're looking every day. Is today the day? We're a people of Advent as well. He has promised to return. So go watch. Go to your post and look out. And one day like Simeon, we will actually take hold with physical hands, our risen Lord. We will see with physical eyes his beauty once again. But he will not come back as a baby. He will come back as a glorious warrior king and he will not be bearing a cross. That work is finished, but he will be crowned. Maybe today. Let's pray.